please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And then we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. You can follow along with the reading and the response on the screen. Today's reading comes from Isaiah 40, one, verses 1 through 11, and Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground should become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry and I said what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. From Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, thank you, Lee, and good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Ian. I have the privilege of uh, being one of the pastors here and uh, excited to open up God's word for us this morning. Uh, as we are continuing in our Isaiah sermon series here today, we uh, have kind of hit a turning point in the book of Isaiah. When we began this sermon series, uh, we mentioned that we'd be spending the majority of our time in the second thematic half and circumstantial book of Isaiah, which begins right here with what Lee just read from Isaiah chapter 40. Now, we've given just a brief sample over the past few weeks, but chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah have been marked primarily, not exclusively, but primarily by confrontation from the Lord to his people and warnings of divine judgment. See, God's people were not listening to the Lord. Though they honored him with their lips, their hearts were far from them. 
though he had promised them a better way and invited them to trust him, even delivering them on numerous occasions from destruction, they still continually turned to idols. They turned to other nations. They turned and looked at themselves for their hope, identity, and salvation. And God, in both his grace and his righteousness, would not allow this to continue. And Isaiah 39, the chapter right before this, tells the haunting reality of what was to come. Verse 6 of Isaiah 39 says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, they come and they defeat Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They took most of the people into exile in Babylon. And if you can try for just a moment to imagine being in their shoes, being in exile is a unique form of suffering. It's disorienting. It's confusing. You're being brought into a culture and a country that is not your own, often with different languages and different religious practices. The economy, the jobs, the type of home you live in, all of this is different, unfamiliar, and uncomfortable. You see, the exile for the people of Israel was a truly traumatic experience, and when people go through something traumatic like that, it raises existential angst, doesn't it? Has God totally forsaken us? Has he abandoned his people? Is God even out there? Is there any hope in the midst of the situation we find ourselves in? You see, the people are in a deep, dark place. We know from later on in Isaiah 40, they are bitter and angry at the Lord for their situation. There's seemingly no way out. But right there, in the midst of deep darkness, deep alienation from home, in the midst of their sorrow, comes Isaiah chapter 40. You see, Isaiah here, and for the rest of the book, begins to communicate what the Lord will do in the future for these exiles. And even as we get closer to the end of Isaiah, even more than just the exiles, what he will do for all of God's people at the end of all time. But Isaiah 40 is the hinge. I love how Jared Wilson describes this chapter. He says, if the Bible were an hourglass, Isaiah 40 would be the middle where the sands of time falling through the old covenants begin to accumulate and take shape to forecast the new age to come through Christ. This is a significant chapter in the Bible. It's a beautiful chapter. It's one that is full of hope for a suffering people. And so this morning, as we attempt to do justice to what's here in God's word in the book of Isaiah, here's kind of our main idea, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to jump in and move through this chapter and into 52. Here's our main idea today. God promises us comfort through the certainty of his own coming in glory and grace. God promises us comfort through the certainty of his own coming in glory and grace. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in together. Uh, Father, we come before you as a, a needy people today in need of a reminder of your glory and your grace, a reminder of the good news of the gospel, uh, a reminder of our need for you to come, for you to show up and do what only you can do. So Lord, help us be humble this morning. Help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. Holy Spirit, communicate through your word in our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we walk through these chapters, I want to look at the comfort of God, the certainty of God, 
and then land with the greatness of God. Okay, let's look back at Isaiah 40, verse 1. Isaiah opens this, this word from the Lord, and it says, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, this is the very first words of the Lord to his people in exile. And those words are comfort, comfort. Remember, we talked about this in Hebrew. Repetition is meant to emphasize. You see, even though his people have failed to listen to his word, they have turned away from him. Though he warned them this was coming, his deepest desire, the Lord's deepest desire for his people is comfort. Now, we might be tempted to say, now, wait a minute, don't they need a good scolding? I mean, don't they need to be reminded, I told you so? Don't they need to sit and think about why they're in this place for a bit longer? I mean, don't they need to own up to their sin? Don't they need to apologize as to why they're in this predicament? You see, you and I, we would expect that. But the Lord is not sending that message. He sends a message of comfort. He says, speak tenderly, literally, speak to the heart of my people. God wants to win them back to himself, and beautifully, he still claims them as his own. They might be in exile. They might be surrounded by people who look different than them, talk different than them, have oppressed them and brought them to a land that is not their home, but the Lord looks at them and says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You see, God's people have fresh ears to hear that word, don't they? Everything else has been stripped away. Their city abandoned, their temple destroyed. They've been taken away from home. And it's only when Israel gets to the end of themselves that they are ready to hear once more, you are my people and I am your God. I'm sure like many of you this week, I've been watching and reading all sorts of stuff on the 9-11 attacks as we just observed 20 years yesterday since that horrible event. And one of the things that everyone remarks, whether you're watching a documentary or a depiction of it or reading an article, was just how ordinary that day began, wasn't it? And then all of a sudden, in an instant, everything was changed. We all remember, if you were alive for that moment, where you were when you heard the news, don't you? And for those who were directly involved, something as simple as an ordinary workday would radically alter the rest of their lives. And the scary thing is, is it just happened like that, didn't it? It was a reminder to me this week as I was considering this passage and considering the weight of all that went on in that moment, just how fragile our lives are, aren't they? Just how fleeting comfort, true comfort is in this world. See, moments like that jar us awake that our only true source of comfort the only true and lasting comfort that we can have in this unpredictable life in this fallen world is if it is found in the God of all comfort. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism captures this, the very first question. It's a beautiful summary. Asks this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, if you are looking for comfort anywhere but there, it could be gone in a moment. The Lord looks at his suffering, sinful people and says, 
You are my people. I am your God. Find comfort in that. But I want you to also appreciate this is not a generic comfort. This is not a Western Americanized comfort here. This is a redemptive reality. There's a redemptive comfort that comes here. We see that in three ways in verse 2. This is a comfort that comes with freedom. The Lord looks at his people and he says, your warfare is ended. Your strife and your difficulty, it's over. The Lord has declared it is finished. You've been set free. The hardships, the difficulties that you have been experiencing, they are not permanent. They have an expiration date. Your warfare is over. But then secondly, there's forgiveness in this comfort. Her iniquity, her sins are pardoned. The sins that have caused them to end up in exile, they're forgiven. Atonement has been made. The Lord has forgiven them. And then more than that, there is a promise of the comfort of full acceptance. It's not just forgiveness. They also have been set in a restored relationship with their God. The voice here says that Israel, she has received double for all her sins. Now, at first glance, that surely sounds like he's punishing them doubly, doesn't it? But that doesn't fit the context here. That's not what he's saying. This is not a double punishment. It's a promise of a double pardon. God is not merely saying your sins are forgiven. He's also receiving them back. They are not forgiven and then held at arm's length. They are welcomed back into the warmth of the relationship with their God. See, though they stood condemned and guilty, God meets them with grace upon grace. Ray Ortland says this, There is an end to God's disciplines, but there is no end to God's comforts. Do you believe that to be true? He says, see in God, not a frown, but a smile, not distance, but nearness. Even when we don't act like the people of God, he still identifies with us. And listen, if you're sitting there saying that's too good to be true, you're starting to grasp just how true it is. God is coming to his people with love and compassion and inviting them into renewal into a fresh experience with him, into, dare I say, a revival of their faith. But for the people to experience that, they must get ready. They must prepare. And you and I, we must do the same. Look at verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In the ancient Near Eastern world, when a dignitary or a king or a queen or royalty would come on a visit from a faraway place, or maybe they were heading to a part of their kingdom they had never visited before, You see, those royalty, they didn't use the pre-existing roads. There was an expectation that because of the honor and the respect that was due to them, they built new highways and roads. They carved out a new way. This still happens in some places of the world. I had a friend this week who was telling me that he took two trips to Africa. The first time he went, they took this back road up rocky mountains and sand and desert for hours to get to this place. He came back two years later, paved highway. He said, what the heck is going on? They said, well, this is the queen's way. When the queen came, the highway was built. Isaiah hears a voice crying out to those in the wilderness. 
wilderness being symbolic for those in exile, make straight a highway for our God. Royalty was coming. It's time to pave a new highway. But here's the beauty of that promise of comfort. God was not sending a representative to go get his people, though that would have been surely gracious and kind, wouldn't it? God was not sending a king or a warrior in his stead to rescue them. No, did you hear the promise? God himself was coming to his people in the wilderness. And because the Lord is far greater and far higher and far grander than any earthly royalty, the preparations must match this. At his coming, these verses tell us, every valley lifted up, filled in. Every mountain and hill will be made low. I know the mountains and the valleys are lost in us here in Florida, right? I get that. But you've seen them, right, out there. I mean, I remember driving through Colorado this summer. Those mountains are insane. And the Lord says, you want to make way for my coming, the mountains are going to be brought low. The valleys are going to be filled. Now, there's some debate here, but I don't think Isaiah is talking about a literal change to the topography of the earth. He's talking about a new moral landscape that will be created when the Lord comes to his people. Remember what we saw back in Isaiah 6. Whenever God's glory shows up, what happens? That earthquake, that idea of displacement, the heavier, weightier, more significant reality collides with the lesser thing, and there's a displacement. The voice is saying, the Lord is coming, the holy, glorious, holy Lord of hosts and King of kings is on his way. And figuratively, the highest of mountains and the deepest of valleys will be affected. You see, now we're helped here by the witness of the New Testament. If you're thinking in the back of your mind, man, those verses sound familiar, it's because all four Gospels quote Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. And they all quote it in reference to John the Baptist. At the time of John the Baptist, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, had arrived. The incarnation of Christ is the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise given some 700 years before from Isaiah. And remember, what is John the Baptist's message? It's precisely verses 3 through 5. Prepare, make straight, get ready, repent, and believe. For the kingdom of God is at hand because guess what? The king is here. Here's what that tells us. Just as the ancients would build a new highway so royalty could ride smoothly, we are to do the same thing in our own souls. Although we are not capable of bringing the mountains down or filling the valleys up, the best of modern technology, we can drill a tunnel and build a bridge, right? But we're not bringing the mountains down. We're not filling the valleys up. But we are called to prepare and make straight our own hearts to receive the coming of the King of Kings. Brothers and sisters, I know that some of you are here in this place today and you feel like you are in the wilderness right now. You feel like you're in some form of exile. Maybe it's a sin in your life that has had consequences that have led you to where you're at today. Maybe it's just the fact you live in a broken, suffering world. Maybe you feel distant from the Lord. Listen to me. Isaiah 40 tells us as plain as it could be, God's desire for you is comfort in himself. He has said, it is finished. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. There is full acceptance and a double pardon being offered to you. 
And the invitation to you and to me is to embrace that God's kindness in that way is meant to draw us to repentance, to do precisely what John the Baptist said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The king is here. Make room in your own soul. The glory of the king and the clutter of our own lives, they don't go together. Clear it all out. Make it straight. This is how we see and experience the glory and the grace of the Lord. So are you bearing fruits and keeping with repentance? If you think I'm too far gone, if you think this is too destitute a situation, look at Isaiah 40. There's promise of comfort. And Isaiah tells us that it's the mouth of the Lord that has spoken this, which leads him into our second point here, the certainty of God. Look at verse 6. Another voice says, cry. And Isaiah said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's been a while since I've shared with you the adventures of my backyard, so let me reintroduce you to that uh, interesting situation in my home. Uh, in our home, we have a completely shaded backyard with a canopy of trees overhead, okay? Now, that's awesome on one hand because we live in Florida, and it's just unbearably hot, right? And so we get shade. It helps our electric bill. It's good news, okay? It's good news for most things except if you wanted to actually grow grass in the backyard, okay? Previous homeowners have made valiant attempts. We have made barely an attempt, if I'm being honest. I've already told you I'm a big fan of the great indoors, okay? Uh, but if you came to my house right now, you would see this beautiful green patch of something back there. Now it's green, okay? It's not grass, it is weeds. It's that little dollar weed that spreads like sin in our lives, right? Just all over the place, it gets a little foothold and it's there, right? It looks okay right now, as long as I go out and mow the weeds, we're good. But if you came back to my house about three months from now, it looks like a destitute wasteland. I mean, it is brown, there's dirt patches, it's not pretty, okay? The voice in this message is crying out, don't trust in something that does that. Do not trust in grass that is there one day and gone the next. Those flowers that you got are awful beautiful, but what does it take for them to fall away? A few weeks if you bought them at the store, a big storm, something happens. They're here for a moment. They are gone the next. The grass and the flowers might look beautiful, but they've got a short shelf life. And why is the Lord reminding them of this? They're in exile. They've been let down by their own flesh, their own sinfulness, and the flesh of others. Take their king, for example, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is actually considered one of the good kings of Judah. But in the chapter right before this, in 39, you can go back and read it, Babylon, before the invasion, comes to Jerusalem, and Hezekiah, wanting to curry favor with this foreign nation, he decides to show off all of the impressive gold and oil and the armory and literally all that he has in the storehouses to Babylon. This is not a great tactical idea, by the way, to show a potential enemy who is soon to wipe you out, hey, here's everything we've got. Look how impressive this is. So Isaiah shows up and says, what exactly are you doing, Hezekiah? And then he says, listen, in your pride, there's a day that is coming when Babylon's going to carry all this stuff away. And your sons are going to be carried away too. Exile is coming. You know how Hezekiah responds? Look at Isaiah 39, verse 8. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. 
for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. There might be something coming from my son's days, but in my days, at least I get to die and be in the palace and be comfortable. Grass. It's grass. All flesh is grass. Surely the people are grass. It withers and the flower fades. But the people know it's not just Hezekiah. They know that it's true about them as well. And quite frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, we know this is true of us, isn't it? We are just an inconsistent bunch. We are. Don't our spiritual lives so often feel like a yo-yo? I mean, there's some high moments that are followed by some low moments. And every time we're like, okay, we figured this thing out. We're going to be good. The low moment comes again. We so often feel like we're yo-yoing up and down in our lives. And this is meant to be a humbling reality. It's meant to invite us to stop putting our trust in ourselves or the things of this world that will not last and will not stand forever and instead turn to the only thing that does, the Lord himself, the certainty of his word. It's a humbling reality. But it's also a hopeful reality, isn't it? God, those promises that were just given, those incredible, too-good-to-be-true promises, Isaiah says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken them. God's word stands. Just as he promised that judgment would come, and it did, he has now promised that renewal and restoration and comfort will come, and guess what? It has and it will. The breath of the Lord blows on the grass. Here, probably speaking of the Lord destroying Babylon one day, and they're gone. The Lord has promised comfort, forgiveness of sins, the end of all who stand against him in his kingdom. All of the Bible, all of human history is spiraling toward Isaiah 40, verse 5. All flesh will see the glory of the Lord. There is a certainty in that promise that we can trust that can be found nowhere else. Flesh and people will fail all other plans, political structures and parties and ideologies and kings and rulers and whatever philosophies we might want to believe about this world. It's all grass, unless it is from the Lord. It is here one day and gone the next, but the word of our God will stand forever. It is certain. God is saying to the Israelites in the midst of this hopeful promise section, listen, you've already tried this your own way. And look where it's left you. You've turned to grass and it's been burned up. You thought the flowers looked impressive and they're gone. Won't you trust in my word? Won't you trust in me? Won't you put your hope in my promises for you? And the same thing is being offered to you and I today. When all human hopes have let us down as they will, we are ready for the salvation revealed once and for all in the word of God. We face a moment-by-moment -moment decision, brothers and sisters, a moment-by-moment -moment battle. Am I going to trust God's word? Am I going to trust that what he has said is good, is indeed good for me? Or am I going to turn to something else and go my own way? Isaiah here is saying to a suffering people at the end of their rope in exile, trust in my word. Trust in my word. It will happen. It is certain. And then as he gives them confidence in his word, he then turns and gives them just this unbelievable vision. The sections here in the end of 40 and 52 are just glorious. This tells us of the greatness of God. He lifts their eyes of those in exile up to see a far greater story that he is writing, a far bigger reality than they could have ever grasped. 
This is a story that will impact the whole world, the whole universe. In verse 9, after reassuring them, he says, Okay, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. As the people prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord, they're given a vision here of who this Lord truly is. You see, in the midst of our sin and our suffering and when we're in exile, when we feel distant from the Lord, we can be tempted to believe things that are not true about him. And Isaiah says, let me remind you once more what is really true about your God. And this picture of good news, literally gospel, is what's over and over again in this passage. The good news, the gospel, this picture of God, I think it feels like a paradox to us if we're honest. As they behold their God, we see that he is full of both glory and of grace. It's the same experience Isaiah had in that throne room just for all the universe to see. I mean, look at both of those, that seeming paradox. We see God's glory. This chapter tells us that the Lord will come as a mighty warrior king, won't he? He is a conqueror who, when he comes, he puts the nations on notice. He comes in power and in might and in victory for all to see. It says his arm will rule over the nations and over all things. Earth itself is his mere footstool. You see, when the Lord comes, he comes in glory. But at the same time, he comes in grace, doesn't he? The very same arm that rules for him and shows his might over the nations tenderly grabs up his lambs into the safety of his embrace. With one arm, he rules over the nations. With the other arm, he gently welcomes his flock to his bosom. You see, the mighty warrior king is also the tender shepherd king who gently leads his people. That's quite the depiction, isn't it? I mean, what kind of king is like that? Well, we know the answer. Jesus is the full manifestation of what's described there, isn't he? I mean, we've been reading Revelation right now in our community Bible reading. If you're with us, I hope you're reading it. I know it's crazy. It's got bizarre stuff in it, right? It's better than Ezekiel, though. Let's be honest. I mean, I know you're liking the temple descriptions. That's important, but Revelation's got a little flair to it. But isn't this the feel you get of Jesus in Revelation? Isn't this it? I mean, John tells us that the Lord Jesus is a mighty conqueror. I mean, the book opens and a double-edged sword emerges from his mouth, which he will slay the nations. He comes clothed in a robe dipped in blood, riding a war horse. That's a mighty conquering king, isn't it? But at the very same time, what else is he in Revelation? What is he called over and over again? The Lamb of God who was slain whose own blood was shed to wash clean our sin-stained garments and to make us white as snow in his gentleness and his grace and his forgiveness. We probably like to lean into one or the other of those visions. The Lord comes full of glory and full of grace. That's the good news that Isaiah wants them to know. And I love how Dane Ortland describes this from Gentle and Lowly. If we come to God as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, 
so deep will his lamb-like tenderness be for us. That's good news. That's the good news. Now, what does that create in a people? For those who embrace that good news, what happens? What is the response? I think we see this over in Isaiah 52. Look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, ye wastelands of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is a beautiful, poetic description of receiving the good news of the gospel. It has two implications for us. What's the response of this? The first is worship. It's worship, isn't it? We just saw it right there. It pictures watchmen up on the high part of the city walls of Jerusalem. All of a sudden, he sees this messenger coming in the distance. He's running toward the city gates. He's shouting, good news, good news, gospel, gospel. And his feet are beautiful, feet that would have been dirty, blistered, bleeding from a long run. They don't have Nikes back then, right? Sandals at best. Feet would have been gross. But what are they called? Beautiful. Why are they beautiful? They bear beautiful news. Though Jerusalem has been destroyed, your God still reigns. Salvation is coming. Your God is on the way. And what do the watchmen do? They sing. They do what God's people have always done. They sing. They sing with joy. Their hearts are gladdened by the good news. When a people who thought they were God-forsaken are met by the love and comfort of that God, we break forth into worship. This is why we exist as a church. As God's glory fills all the earth, so too will be the response of worship. But it doesn't just stop at worship. It then moves to proclamation. I love Isaiah 40. The voice switches from these heavenly voices who are telling Isaiah what to say, and now the voice is the people of God. The Lord says, go up on a high mountain. Well, why are they supposed to do that? So you can shout out for as many people as possible to hear the good news. Lift up your voice. Turn up the volume on it. Do not fear your exile. Do not fear the enemy. Do not even fear your own sinfulness. Tell all who will hear, behold your God. Look at this God. And there's an urgency. The watchmen are proclaiming that he's coming. Look how incredible this is going to be. For those who were God forsaken, who have now been met by the grace and mercy of God, they have a story to tell, don't they? So go up on the high mountain. Publish it to as many as will hear. Behold your God. Your God reigns. He is coming. He is coming. And if you're here in this room and that is your story, you have something to proclaim too. You have something to declare and display with your own life. And as you do so, our weary, tired, gross feet, they're called beautiful too. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this, the worse that things become in our world, anybody feel that right now? 
the worse that things become in our world, the more compelling this message becomes, doesn't it? This world isn't it. Your time in exile, your time of suffering, your time of sin, the Lord's put an expiration date on those things. The Lord is coming. Prepare a highway in the desert for the Lord. There is hope and there is comfort offered. The Lord has come in Christ and the Lord will come again. That is the hope we cling to. That is the reason why we worship and that is why we proclaim to any and all who will hear, behold your God. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful reminder this passage is of both your glory and your grace. God, what kindness, what mercy, what grace that you would meet a rebellious people in the midst of the consequences of their sin and rebellion and offer them comfort because you have claimed them and you have claimed us as your own and you have promised to come with mercy and with grace and with comfort and with forgiveness. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room who struggle to believe that that is really true Help what we sang earlier to be our prayer. Give us faith to trust what you say. Help us to cling to that which is certain and will last. And help us to be drawn in your kindness to a life of faith, repentance, worship, and proclamation. May that be our existence here at the King's Church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.